Uh, it is really good to be with you. I am super thankful uh, that Chris and the leadership uh, invited me to come uh, and, and speak with you. And if you could just be half as encouraged at the end of this as my wife and I have been, being able to connect with you and sing with you and pray with you, it's going to be uh, quite the morning. Uh, and it's always fun to visit different churches because, like, every church basically has the same mission statement. Every church has the same plan, right? Preach gospel, be about Jesus. But then you go to churches that are actually about Jesus. And this is a church that's actually about Jesus. From the second I've been here up until this point, all I hear is Christ, Christ, Christ. It's all about him. So just to encourage you, like God is doing something in this midst. And I know last week you celebrated a third birthday, and it's not surprising to me that you guys have made it three years and God's starting to show a blessing, right? He's giving you great building and great leadership, and he's knit together a great group of people. Because a church about Jesus just has his blessing, has his favor. And as I've been thinking about and praying about, Lord, what could I give Vertical Church this Sunday, I just come coming back to this question. What would it mean for Vertical Church St. Paul to be a part of a unique movement of God? What would it mean for this church to be the tip of the spear, the spearhead, that goes into every nook and cranny in the Twin Cities where the enemy has way too much real estate? And actually see something crazy happen. See something cool happen. What would it mean to be a part of a movement of God? And I don't mean flash in the pan, kind of one moment hyped up on emotion. I'm talking about a movement of God that is sustained because vertical church is holy. Vertical church is humble. Vertical church has a singular focus to make Christ famous in the Twin Cities. That's some movement I'm talking about. What would it mean in year four, five, six, seven to year 50 if vertical church was a part of a unique movement of God? Because here's the thing, people are wired for movements. We all love to be swept up into things. Think about Black Friday. What else can get people to camp around Kmart at four in the morning except a movement. It's more than just a morning, right? That's commercials, that's people dressing up, that's crazy sales on tinsel and peppermint. It's a movement. Think about what else can get a man who is an accountant by day to paint his belly at a football game. <laughs> movement. We're part of something bigger. Social media thrives off movements. Remember a couple of years ago we all did the ice bucket challenge. It's a movement. A something, a tweet uh, that went trending or viral. It's bigger than the tweet. That's a movement. Right now, you can kind of see all those Facebook profile pictures with the social awareness frame. It's bigger than the thing. That's a movement. We love movements. If you think about the year of 2020, that will go down as the year of movements. Cultural movements, social movements, political movements, medical movements. We are wired to be swept up into something bigger than ourselves. And so the question I have then is what would it mean for the church to be a part of a movement? Maybe not just think big corporate, maybe think specifically. What would it look like for God to move the needle in your life? Wherever you've come in at this morning, some of you are walking with Jesus your whole life, some of you have questions. What would it mean to God do something unique in your life? to be the tip of the spear, to move into the years to come with some momentum. Because I don't want to sound 
super idealistic. I don't want this to be like a rah-rah message. I want you to hear from God's word. Because the Bible, by and large, is a story of movements. Of moments in time that are so much bigger than just the one thing. No, but God doing something quite unique and quite beautiful. So this morning, we're going to be in Nehemiah 2. Uh, and we're going to work through Nehemiah 2, glance at chapter 3. And as you flip there, just by way of context, Nehemiah, book in the Old Testament, and you guessed it, it's about movements. It's about this crazy moment in history. So to get you up to speed to Nehemiah, most of the New Testament is God's people being characterized by sin. Just this sick cycle of depravity. And so what God does, he sends prophet after prophet and warns them, guys, if you don't repent, if you don't start walking in accordance to God's ways, you're going in exile, you're going into enslavement. Guys, I'm really serious this time. And for about a thousand years, Israel, by and large, doesn't care. They don't listen. And so eventually, God's had it. Babylon comes, takes Israel into exile. They get marched a thousand miles away, and for 70 years, Israel rots in Babylon. Then the Persian Empire comes to power. They defeat the Babylonians. And God uses the Persian Empire to free the Israelites. And so now in three different waves, Israelites start coming back to Jerusalem. And fun fact for the theological nerds, this is when Israel becomes known as the Jewish people because they're resettling Judea. And so this is the moment we find ourselves in with Nehemiah. He's an Israelite, but he's working in the Persian government. He works in the king's court. And as people start returning to Jerusalem, God starts stirring something. A movement starts happening. And Nehemiah starts feeling the pull. So the book of Nehemiah is not just about a wall being built. This is literally the movement of God's people, but more so it's the movement of God restoring his people to his ways in his city in accordance to his promises. It's the story of movement. So what I want to do today is I want to study movement, but I want us to think about it as a recipe. That is, if God moves, what makes up the movement? Like if we believe that God can do something crazy in the years to come, what needs to first take place? Because I love what Chris just talked about. This is our moment. This is the moment. So as we pray into, minister into this moment, what makes up a movement? Because Nehemiah teaches us at least three things. So the question for us as we study is, if a movement's on the precipice, do you want to be a part of it? What would you do to be a part of it? Not just to see it corporately, but even individually, what would you do to see God move? Read with me. Verse 1 of Nehemiah 2, as we consider the makeup of a movement. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? What makes up a movement? Here's the first thing. Movements begin with brokenness. Like here's the scene. Nehemiah is a cupbearer in the Persian 
empire. And what that means is kind of like the culinary bodyguard. He tests all the food and drink and makes sure it's not poisoned. And now when you're in the presence of the king, you leave the moody, wet blanket stuff at home. It's party zone with the king. But everyone sees something's wrong with Nehemiah. And so the king calls him out. Nehemiah, why are you so sad? And Nehemiah sits and says, listen, I'm, I'm trying my best. How can I not be distraught? My city, my homeland, the place of my people, the place of my God, it's burning. It's destroyed. What do you want me to do? He is physically, emotionally, spiritually broken. But see, it's at broken places that movements begin. Think of King Josiah. They tell a story in 2 Kings, another book in the Old Testament. And Josiah is this king, and, and at the time, again, Israel is marked by sin. It's idolatry. It's the most uh, depraved thing you can think of. And there's this time when the book of the law is found in the temple, and it's read to King Josiah. And King Josiah, broken, he tears his robe. He calls a fast. There is this moment then of collective and individual repentance, and you see a mighty, holy movement of godly reforms in Israel that usher in blessing. Started with brokenness. Think of the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul says in Romans 9, he looks at his brothers and sisters, his kinsmen in the faith, and he says, if I could switch places with you, because you don't know Jesus Christ, and because you don't know Jesus Christ, if I could go to hell in your place, I would. He's broken for his people. It's that place of brokenness, though, that Paul becomes the most monumental church planter and missionary the world's ever seen. That's a movement of God. Start with brokenness. You study modern church revivals. Great Awakening takes place in colonial America and England. Second Great Awakening, mostly America. Welch revivals, uh, the prayer revival meetings, all of it happens the same way. A group of men and women on their knees confessing repenting. They're not giving charge-the-hill sermons. They're broken by sin. It's in these moments that God moves. Movements start with brokenness. And so let me just ask you this morning, what breaks your heart? I'm not asking you what bothers you. A lot of things bother us. Masks bother us. Politics bother us. I'm asking what breaks you. What's that thing? It just turns in your gut where you're not okay with it. Maybe it's some personal sin. Maybe there's some personal sin that's been causing havoc in your life and for a while it's just been bothering you. But no, you know this morning there needs to be confession. There needs to be repentance. This sin is breaking me. Maybe it's some corporate sin. Think of the millions of babies we murder a year. Think of the tens and thousands of men, women, and children who are trafficked across the globe. We think about so many displaced people from war-torn countries. What breaks you? Maybe it's the fact that you have family and friends who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
And if they were to die this moment, they would enter into an eternity of torment. Dude, guest preacher, why are you being so heavy? That's the point. Like, what is breaking you this morning? You find moments of brokenness, you're going to realize where God might be inviting you into a movement. Uh, my wife and I, Lindsay, we're planting a church on the North Shore of Boston. And um, we're not planting a church in Boston because we necessarily like Boston all that much. Like, it's a fine place. It's fun to be in a city that wins sports championships every now and then. But it's no Minnesota where the hot dish overfloweth. But we're there because the block we live on, about 20 neighbors, there is not one person who's a Christian. Outside of the circle that I kind of swim in at my church, I know of three people this morning who are in a church somewhere worshiping Jesus. 97.2% of Boston, greater Boston, is non-Christian. There was this moment Lindsay and I had. We were driving down 128. It's the road that drives into the North Shore and out of the North Shore. Cars are flying by us on the left, on the right. And we had this just realization. Like, everyone here is going to hell. It's brokenness. That's why we're there. Pray for our church. We are, uh, where we meet as a church, we meet in a conference center of a hotel. And we found the place. I wasn't super thrilled about it. It's kind of a dumpy, crappy hotel. Uh, but it was like the last spot we could find. So we just figured, well, this is it or we have nothing. So we start meeting in this hotel. We're trying to get, build relationships, get it ready for church. Uh, turns out the hotel we're in is the highest sex-trafficked hotel in greater Boston. Think about what happens, what abuse takes place a hundred feet from where God's people meet. It's brokenness. It's possibility. What breaks you? You start identifying those things, you will see where God starts inviting you into movements, but it can't stop with just brokenness. It has to materialize. Go to verse 4 with me, please. Keep reading. The king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. In a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. What's the makeup of a movement? It starts with brokenness, second part piece. It requires boldness. Like, don't miss the bold ass that Nehemiah just had. The king says, okay, Nehemiah, what do you want? He says, I want to go free. I want you to guarantee me safe travels for the next thousand miles back to Jerusalem. 
and I want you to pay for the supplies to rebuild this wall around Jerusalem. And just so we're clear, this is not chain link fence. Best guess, this wall is at least 11 feet high and six and a half feet wide. It is the most ridiculous, bold fundraising ask. This is you asking your boss, I want unlimited PTO, pay where I want to go, and pay for what I want to do. Like, we would never do that. But I love Nehemiah. He doesn't let brokenness fester. He doesn't just sit and say, oh, if only we could do something. And Nehemiah says, well, dang it. Let's roll. I'm going to get bold here. All right, king, you're asking? Give me everything. I'm asking for the moon. You want to be encouraged this morning, Vertical Church. You want to see God use you. Walk in this swagger. Verse 8. The king granted me what I asked. Why? For the good hand of my God was upon me. Let that fuel some boldness in the room. Man, Jesus Christ, his spirit is in you. You are sent by his spirit and God's hand is upon you. So be bold for the sake of Jesus Christ. See, I do think most of us are broken for things. I think we can look around at either individual sin or big collective sin, and there is a natural brokenness to us. Maybe we're numb to it because we see it so much. I do wonder, though, how much boldness we have. I do think we're broken for whatever personal sin you may be walked in with. Are you bold enough to repent and to confess to your spouse, to the person you've wronged, to the Lord? I think we're mostly all in here broken for the reality that the abortion craziness is out of control. Are we bold enough to lead the way in adoption and foster care? I think we're broken that we have family members who don't know Jesus. Are you bold enough to talk about the reality of hell? I think we can look at the unreached people groups around the world and we can be broken. Are we bold enough to go where the gospel isn't? See, brokenness is great. It needs to lead to boldness. Jesus never lowers the bar anywhere. Give it all to me. Lay down your whole life. I want everything. Go. If you have a brokenness and you have a boldness from him, So I know right now in this room, God is asking some of you to do some pretty bold things for the fame of Jesus Christ. He is calling some of you to pick up your life and move where the gospel isn't. You are sitting in a great church. You have an unbelievably gifted Bible teacher as your pastor. It will make zero sense if in 10 years you are all here. If you are being trained up in the ways of the Lord for the love of donuts, go where the gospel isn't. There are cities, there are places in this world that are being crushed because we're not being bold. This is comfortable. Song, music, awesome. Preaching, great. Why would I leave? Because there's a lot of places where the gospel isn't preached. Then you got to move. God's calling some of you to a job change. Your career is getting in your way. Takes up all your mind, all your focus, all your energy for what? A bigger paycheck? 
corner office, bold. Be bold, because he wants you to do something different, to engage in his mission more fully. God's calling some of you to write a massive paycheck, or a massive check, sustain the mission. You've been saving and saving and saving. Christ says, I want it. Be bold with it. See, brokenness is great. It has to lead to boldness. Do we have the boldness Nehemiah had? It's a convicting thought for me. I think of, I'm a, a really good friend of mine. His name's Dylan. Uh, I'd been in Boston for maybe two years, and Dylan shows up. He had moved from Georgia. And um, to be kind of like stereotypical, Boston, like every other person has a PhD. Dylan's from Georgia, super thick, dirty Southern accent. But he was so excited to engage in the mission in New England. And so he starts hanging out, and I had the privilege to hang out with Dylan a lot and try to encourage him the best I could and spend time with him. And all of a sudden, God started doing something in his heart for Spain, because Spain is an unbelievably unreached country. And so he's like, Kyle, I think God might be calling me to Spain. All right, dude, let's pray now. Let's think about that. So he kind of goes through his discernment process. And I remember I'd run into Dylan walking through Beverly, the city we were living in. He had his earbuds in. I'm like, Dylan, what are you listening to? I'm listening to Spanish radio right now. Why? I'm trying to learn the language. I'd show up at his apartment every now and then. He'd be watching Netflix dubbed in Spanish. Dylan, why are you watching Spanish? I want to be a more effective communicator for the gospel. So this goes on for a couple of years, and all of a sudden shows up and says, Kyle, I'm applying to be a missionary to Spain for the rest of my life. And I think, okay, Dylan, right now Dylan's like 26. He leaves everything he knows in Georgia because he felt God calling him to Boston. He gets to Boston, makes a great community of friends, and he still feels the Lord saying, I want you somewhere different to engage in my di mission differently. What other word describes a kid besides bold who would spend his free time listening to Spanish radio stations, watching Netflix in Spanish to be a more effective communicator of the gospel? He's been in Spain for two years now. He's planting a church. He's reaching the uh, suburbs of Milan. And so I was, I was interviewed, or not interviewed, the organization that partners with him called me for like their biannual check, and they said, how's Dylan doing? What's his faith like? What's his marriage like? And the only word I could say is the kid's bold. He's all out because he's broken. And I know the word's way too cliche and overused. But to me, what's most inspiring about Dylan is if you talk to him, he would say the exact same thing that Nehemiah says. Bro, God's hand is upon me. He is doing things in Spain. Whether you're here and you've been following Jesus for a long time or you're just trying to figure out who Jesus is, I don't know anybody who wouldn't say, I want God's hand on me. Yeah, I don't know that many people who say, yeah, I feel his hand on me. Why the disconnect? We all want stories of God moving in our lives. Not many position themselves in such a way God has to move in their lives. Brokenness has to lead to boldness. So one more makeup of a movement. So Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem. And for the first few days, he inspects the wall. And it's 
broken down is worse than he thought. He understands that we are so susceptible to attacks, and so something has to happen. He says in verse 17, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. He says to the people, God is with us, and then in verse 20, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, for we have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Here's what he's saying. This isn't going to be about us. This will always be a God thing. This is a glory of God thing. See, big vision, big movements, they'll always attract the third ingredient. If you look at chapter 3 of Nehemiah, it's just a list of names. See, movements attract builders. When there's brokenness, when there's boldness, that's the type of thing as a lightning rod for people to come and join in on. I don't think real movements of God are sustained by the personality of a speaker. I don't think they're sustained by strategy, per se. I think if you want to see a real movement of God, that is sustained by men and women who want to go all in and say, it's not going to be about me. I have no claim in this. No one's going to leave vertical church and talk about what Pastor Chris did. No one's going to leave vertical church and talk about how great the worship was. Know that the heartbeat would be, we're going to leave and talk about, Jesus is unbelievable. He is doing something. Seeing that's a type of movement that attracts builders. It's the expectation that God can still do the impossible. And I want to be a part of it. I don't need to be a part of this church to know the battle you are about to face. You have a sweet new building. It's pretty awesome in here. Sweet people. Everyone's great. There's some energy. There's some momentum. Here's the battle you're stepping into next year. I can just coast. Somebody else will do it. Seems like a well-oiled machine here. They got some things going. They really don't need me. Don't buy that lie. You are called to build. You are being brought here not to sit on the sideline, but to build. There are no passengers in a church. God's call for you, be broken about sin, be bold in faith, and then build. Engage. Do something and don't expect credit for it. It doesn't matter if they know your name. No, build, Nehemiah, build. I had this thought this week. That when Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, he inspects the wall, they start building. And there must have been two groups in Jerusalem. There's those who built, and there are those who watched building. Don't watch someone else build. That is a waste of your time. He calls you to build. He calls you to engage. See, we all want movements of God. Are we willing to build to see a movement of God. So I'm just going to circle back to the question I asked you 15 minutes ago. What would it mean for vertical church to see a movement of God? What would you do to be a part of one? What would it mean for you to engage? Because listen, the time is now. Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem. Those cats build the wall in 52 days. Like that is some urgency in the bones. Jesus Christ comes and gives us the exact same urgency. Jesus Christ 
lives, dies for our sins, fulfills the law, rises on the third day, and then he tells his church, go, disciple the nations, go everywhere the gospel isn't, and build the church. Like there has got to be an urgency always in the life of this church if you want to see movement. And so two application points for us this morning. What does it mean for us to see a movement, to be a part of a movement? First is this, build in. God typically works inside out. So what does God have to do in you? What's God trying to build inside of you? A passion for holiness? Pursuit of humility? Confession, repentance on the regular? Are there areas of your life not in step with the gospel? He wants to start building that in you. Do you need to start building habitual times of communing with God in prayer, in fasting, in scripture? What's he doing in you? He wants to build in. Maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. The boldest thing you can do is confess faith in Jesus Christ. He wants to build that in you today. There needs to be a brokenness over your sin. This understanding that I have fallen short of your standard, God. I can't save myself. But Christ, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to put my faith in you to do what I can't do. Like, that's a bold decision. One you can make today that Christ offers to you. There needs to be a building in. It's great to see corporate movements. God's way more concerned with what's going on inside your heart today. So we build in first, and then we get to build out. That's point two. And that's the corporate piece. Where is God calling you to engage in his mission tangibly and actively? Here's the starting point. And I'm not being asked to say this, I just assume this is every church's starting point. Serve his church. If you want to build out here, engage here. So serve. The most profound, awesome ministry I've ever had doing anything as a pastor is serving with people. Preaching's great. I love moving tables with people. Because that's where you get to know people. Serve. Connect in a group. Community groups, small groups, whatever you guys call them. Like, get with people. Start building that out. Again, I'm flying out tomorrow so I can say this. Start giving. Financially. Invest in the church. Whatever ministries happen here, be the first person to show up. Here's the boldest thing you can do this week. Tell your neighbor who Jesus is. Again, corporate movements are great. It might start with an invitation for someone to come over to your house. Start seeing the movement that way. When no one's asking you, will you get into your prayer closet and pray and contend that God would use this church to do something crazy in the Twin Cities? That's bold. That's what it means to build. We build in and we build out. 
And if you're not willing to do those things this morning, you are so loved. You just don't want to see a movement. Nehemiah is pretty clear. It started with brokenness for his people, for his city. It moved on to a boldness. I'm going back. I'm asking for the moon. And it attracted builders because people saw something different and said, I need to be a part of that. So Vertical Church, it is so fun to cheer you on and pray for you from Boston in some sense. Um, when you read Paul's letters, he talks about praying for the churches that he's not a part of. Uh, my wife and I pray for you guys regularly. And so it's fun to be here this morning and see what God's doing um, in your midst. And for all this movement talk not to be missed, the invitations for all of us is, yes, it's to build, but maybe the more precise way to say it is your invitation to sit in the front row and watch Jesus build. Like, he's going to build this church. The worship team talked about it, 1 Corinthians 3. God gives the growth. The psalmist, God says through the psalmist, I will make my, nation, my name known. So we get a front row seat with open hands just to see a movement. I think God wants to use this church. I think God's going to use this church. And in 14 days, there's about a group of 65 of us who are going to start a new congregation on the North Shore of Boston. And we're going to gather, and we're just going to beg and plead and contend, the Lord do something with us too. But know this, for the last year as we've been preparing to plant, we've been looking at Vertical Church and asking ourselves, how can we run that playbook in Boston? I'm not just giving lip service to it. Like, this church is about Jesus. And so that's why Jesus is doing something here. It's who we want to be in New England. I want to run your playbook. And so in this next season of church life, when we hit three years, let us still be looking at vertical church setting the pace. A Jesus-first church that's seen movements happen. So yes, ask yourself, where am I broken? Where can I be bold? And how can it attract builders? And we do that together. Boston or Minneapolis, St. Paul, big or small, we'll see God move. Pray with me.